I'm Eleanor Smith, and this is your Cast for the week of October 10th. This time, a deep dive into Doug Emlin's research and what we can all learn from beetles. Doug Emlin has been working at the University of Montana for 25 years. He's a biology professor. He teaches genetics and evolution and mentors students, all while conducting his own research. Before he started working for the university, Emlin dedicated his career to an unlikely but entirely worthy candidate, beetles. Dung beetles, to be more specific. Although they're found all over the world, Emlin took interest in a specific species found in Panama. You may be asking yourself, why Panama? Well, Panama, because the species of dung beetles there have horns, big horns. You kind of know that going in. If it's 30% of his body weight, yeah, it's probably 30% of the material resources of whatever to make it. So it's like producing another leg and having it on your head. Since he was a kid, Enlin has always been interested in creatures that seemed like they shouldn't be able to exist. He remembers staring up at a triceratops skull that he saw in a museum and wondering how something with such crazy horns could come to be. I kind of knew I wanted to look at things that seemed like they should be impossible. I've been a fascinated by extremes. And when Emlin was deciding what he was going to study during his postdoc, the crazy big horns on different species of beetles across the world caught his eye. The beetles we study have huge horns. Well, there was an ancestor that didn't have those horns, and there was a transitional sequence that caused populations of these beetles to change over time so that by today, they now have these massive weapons like tusks or antlers, or in our case, beetle horns. There is an answer. It happened. Whether I can figure out how it happened or why it happened or why it happened this way in this population or another way in another population, that's on me. That's the mystery, and that's why people like me do what we do. We want to know the answer. So he started studying. He started out in Ecuador with a species of rhinoceros beetles. But after some trial and error, he just couldn't find enough beetles for his study. So he changed courses. It was a great adventure, climbed some incredible mountains in South America, got to meet and learn about some incredible people and cultures but it was a total failure for research. It was an unexpected turn, and I went from these big sort of chicken egg-sized monstrous beetles to these little tiny things that are about the size of an eraser if you cut it off a new pencil that fed on howler monkey dung in the rainforest. And then I spent the next several years as a graduate student studying horns on beetles. Emlyn's first big question was why. Why did these dung beetles have horns while so many other species didn't? The real distinguishing difference is the species that fought inside tunnels, because they were in a tunnel, which is essentially a tube, it forced the two males to confront each other face-to-face and one-on-one. And then the beetles that fought above the ground in the open, that was much more likely to be pandemonium and chaotic scrambles. And so everything else was the same, but one of them fought in these consistent, repeatable duels, and the other didn't. The tunnels forced the beetles into an enclosed environment. The only way that they could fight is one-on-one. So over time, the horns evolved. And it's the species that fight the fair fights, the duels where the males with the biggest weapons won, and those are the ones with all the crazy stuff coming off their bodies. If I was a male and I had a choice, do I put 30% of my body weight into a big weapon or not? In those kinds of scrambles, it's so unpredictable who wins the fights, there's no benefit to doing it. And And the beetles that don't bother to waste all that on a weapon do better. But in species where the males fight each other sort of toe-to-toe, one-on-one in a duel, in a contest of strength, in those kinds of fights, having a weapon makes a big difference. But not all beetles are made the same. The amount of food each beetle gets while it's growing its horns drastically affects the size of the horns, or if they even have them at all. So, the first rule of Beetle Fight Club was made. Quit while you're ahead. 
can watch the males size each other up. They run sort of side by side, checking each other out, looking at the weapons, seeing who's is bigger. If one of them's a lot smaller, usually they abort. They don't even try. They give it up. Or else they'll start like coming closer and they'll push and they'll spar a little bit. It's a very low intensity, not very dangerous kind of fighting, but they can figure it out. As soon as one of the males figures out he's going to lose, he's gone. But if they're pretty evenly matched, then the fights can ramp up to the next level and then they're really sparring. But it's actually only a small percentage of the fights that really get fully escalated to the knockdown, drag out, really dangerous types of fights. These kinds of animal contests tend to be very ritualized and repeatable to a surprising degree that the fights sort of play out according to almost like an orchestrated sequence. The beetle battles are sort of like King's Court. For anyone who missed that day in seventh grade PE, you basically challenge other players for a chance at the championship match. If you lose, you're out of the game. But if you win, you keep moving up until there's only two teams left. And just like King's Court can be played with pretty much any challenge from basketball to cartwheels, many of the rules of the beetle battles can be seen in other animals with extreme weapons as well. You see this kind of a pattern in so many different animal species with these big weapons. It's like there's no point jumping right in and charging full on if you're going to get maimed or killed in the process. And so by, by building up the contest in stages, males are sort of gathering information, trying to figure out who's going to win, who's going to win. And if a male figures out that he's probably going to lose, you know, he gives up the harem if he walks away, but he lives to fight another day. I mean, there's hundreds of examples of crazy extreme weapons out there. Lots of different kinds of deer, cervids. You see them in antelope. You see them in all kinds of extinct things like triceratops. You see them in crabs. You see them in beetles. There's, all, there's so many cool examples of these extreme structures. But just because an animal has an extreme weapon, that doesn't mean they're automatically going to participate in the same pattern and vice versa. And again, biologists, we love variation and exceptions to all the rules. Just to throw out there some intuitive exceptions, you get butterflies where the males fight like crazy and they fight in one-on-one -on -one duels, but they're all in the air acrobatic and you wouldn't want a big weapon in the air because it would slow you down. So agility and speed and stamina matter more than strength. So that is an animal that has competition, it has duels, but no weapons. So, so again, it has, the whole story has to fall into place. Although it's not a universal rule of the animal kingdom, the rules of beetle battle can be seen in human behavior from literature to modern geopolitics. I could give you a ton of just off the cuff. It's Homer. It's Odyssey. If you go back to things like the Odyssey and the Iliad, there are these elaborate descriptions of the sequence of events of these confrontations between the heroes. And, you know, the, the hero doesn't ever get killed by a nobody. They build up these things in stages. And so, first of all, it's kind of gruesome, but they have to kill a lot of nobodies first before they begin. And then there's a whole bunch of posturing. And if I remember right, they hurl the spears from a distance and then they get closer and then they get closer. And if you look closely at that, they're describing exactly this kind of a protracted sequence of stages where it starts out low intensity, low risk, and it gets more and more serious. And it's always the heroes. It's the biggest, the best warriors that are the ones that throw down for the climactic fight scenes in this type of literature starting all the way back with, with Homer. But you look at this kind of a pattern, and that actually may have shaped a lot of Western civilization throughout history because it was present and influenced through a lot of that history. If you use that logic and apply it to the global map of nation states, look at what's going on. Nobody really worries that Costa Rica and the United States are going to get locked into an arms race. If you look at the hotspots right now, it's India, Pakistan. Both nuclear, comparable gross domestic products, comparable economies, toe-to-toe, -to -toe, line in the sand, that's a duel. That's a one-on-one -on -one encounter that has the potential to escalate. North and South Korea, same way. Right now, the biggie is the United States and China. 
but the research isn't over yet. Can you teach me how okay. to sing like the Beatles? Yes. <laughs> I love this so, so, so much. Okay, so the first song A uh, is the up and down abdominal one. It's like a high intensity, high frequency call, is what we're calling it. So so that is the one that goes. (laughs) 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 Sophia Fitzgerald is a second year PhD student at the university studying sexual selection and sexual signals. But the fun version is that I study why bugs sing and dance before they mate. (laughs) The Beatles have three different types of song and dance. A, B, and C. They sound like this. Beatles, as far as bugs go, can be denoted by they have little wing covers. It's like people often make like jewelry out of them and stuff. So that is elytra and that's like symbolic to beetles. So that covers their wings and on our beetles, there's a segment of the elytra that's right near their thorax, high up on their abdomen that scrapes against the abdomen and that's what causes that noise that we hear. There's little teeth underneath there and that's like kind of like if you were to pick a guitar, there's like multiple vibrations. Kind like of a washboard. Exactly. It, right, because it's, it's very broadband. It's not very tonal. <laughs> Fitzgerald is planning a study in Japan this upcoming summer to study why the Beatles sing and dance before mating. And when she gets a breakthrough in her research, there may be another pattern to recognize in the world around us. Although they're tiny and sometimes easy to overlook, the Beatles and their battles help give us insight into how we fit into the world around us. Emlyn said it best in the end. The process of science is a process that's based on data. It's transparent in the sense that it doesn't really matter whether I like the data. The data are there. It's a transparent process that is self-correcting. So when we get it wrong, we eventually, sometimes it takes longer than it should, but eventually we figure it out and march forward and, and it sort of ratchets us closer to a better and better understanding of the world around us. In other news, UM Parking Director struggles to find solutions in his first month on the job, and UM searches for two new culture and innovation administration positions. In arts, which fat bear are you? Find out in the Fat Bear Scope, and creative women create solutions in the UM Visiting Artist Panel. In sports, UM Tennis starts fall season with great individual performances thanks to good plays from its seniors. To learn more about any of these topics, visit montanakaiman.com or read our paper coming out this upcoming Thursday. This episode of the Kaiman Cast was reported, produced, and edited by me, Eleanor Smith. Next week, reporter Alyssa Tompkins will be with you for a look into rising cost of college and what students today are doing to cope. We'll see you there.